Well, it's the end of the week, and it's time once again for the five-day reading plan podcast. I'm your host, Lance Ward, and I will walk us through some of what we read this week. And you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast. You can also um, locate it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, week 41 was this week. We read many chapters in Jeremiah. We also read 2 Kings 24 to 25, 2 Chronicles 36, Psalms 79 and 126. We finished out James, James 4 and 5, and we read the first three chapters of 1 Peter. In Jeremiah 29, the Lord counters false prophets who are giving false hope, some of whom may even promise a quick return to the promised land after being taken to Babylon. In contrast, though, God speaks through Jeremiah, exhorting his people to build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids, and grow up so much so that you will have grandkids. And then he says, also pray for the well-being of these pagan cities in which you live. Why does he say that? Because God says your exile will be 70 years long. One of the delights of reading through the Bible, by the way, is suddenly stumbling on familiar verses, some of which we've only heard out of context. So in the midst of this chapter, a familiar verse arises, for I know the plans I have for you. And you could probably finish that verse. God says, I know here. And why is he saying that? Because the false prophets don't know. God knows the plans. They don't. And that context surely helps and just brings more life to an already rich verse. You see, some of Jeremiah's audience would die before a return to the promised land. Most would grieve and groan at minimum, not only because they were in a foreign land, but because the ones who captured them had devastated and pillaged the temple and the land from which they came, which we read about in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. So the Lord says to them in so many words, keep trusting me in a less than ideal situation. Don't listen to false prophets who will cause you to rely on empty hopes. For God says, I will make good on my promises, even if you don't live to see them. See, the emphasis here is on the certain plan of God more than it is on the results his people may or may not see. False prophets will not determine their future. God will. Part of the promised hope, indeed the greatest part of it, we see will be a new covenant expressed in chapter 31, a a new covenant that they did not see but that you and I now enjoy. What a comforting and remarkable contrast 31-34 is to 30 verses 12 and following. In chapter 30, he says, Your injury is incurable. There is no remedy, no healing for you. You have enormous guilt and incurable sins. And in 31, 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. If you, like me, know Jesus Christ as your only hope, you can identify with this contrast, can't you? A sin problem that can't be cured by human effort or ingenuity. It can only be resolved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? The Apostle Paul would later cry out. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, like Jeremiah's audience, were once helpless. But the gospel reminds us Christ died for the ungodly. He, as one hymn writer has said, has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. 
Well, Jeremiah continued to remain faithful, but no one wanted to listen. His life was one of pain and humility, and yet it was also one of steadfast trust in the Lord. Just like the other prophets, he was ridiculed, despised, and scoffed at, but this was not God punishing him. Indeed, one day his opposers would be the ones under God's wrath themselves. Asaph's lament in Psalm 79 must have accurately described how the deported people of God must have felt. For those who love the Lord especially, this must have been the worst possible feeling one could have. Everything sacred they once cherished had been overtaken and treated as garbage. Psalm 126, though, speaks of the wonder of a return when Zion's fortunes were restored. It is a psalm of ascent that future generations would sing as they made pilgrimages to Jerusalem for holy days and holy weeks. In the New Testament, we finish the final two chapters of James, a very practical and convicting book, as I mentioned last week. One thing I have done in the past with the shorter books is to title each section after reading it. For example, you might title this week's sections as follows. One, external problems come from within, so guard your hearts and your friendships. Next paragraph, submit your plans to the sovereign hand of God. Next paragraph, don't rely on money for your security. Next, be patient as you wait on the Lord. And then the last section, pray, pray, pray. First Peter is a gem of a book, isn't it? I find myself going to this book and quoting from it often. If you've ever needed a reminder of what you have in Christ, a motivational speech to keep going, if you will, look no further than 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. I especially appreciate his reminder that what we have is something the former prophets could only imagine and not see nearly as clearly as we now see it. And not only the prophets, but the angels themselves, he writes, long to look into what we enjoy. They can only see from afar what we can personally experience. In a biblical sense, you can say that we are the greatest generation, not because of what we've accomplished or achieved, but by what we've received. I am so thankful I was born after Jesus was raised from the dead, aren't you? Since we look back at what is clear rather than forward to what remained to be seen, we have it better than Abraham or Moses or David or even John the Baptist. We know the Messiah's name. We know where he lived. We know what he has done. And we know how he has loved us. All that is left is his return. 1 Peter is also an excellent book when considering a theology of suffering, especially as Peter reminds us of its reality for those who know Christ. You may want to mark all references to suffering, but also all references to hope. For we know that suffering is real for those of us aligned with Christ, but it's not eternal. Finally, note how Peter goes back and forth from what uh, in Greek we call the indicative mood, in other words, what is already true, back and forth from that to the imperative mood or what we are to do. You see this especially in the indicative passage of chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, who we are in Christ, and then chapter 2, 11 to 17 is more of an imperative. Now that we know that's true, what has God called us to do? This reminds me that we are not a people who do in order to have life. We are a people who possess life from God, and therefore we do things in His name. To get that order reversed can lead to legalism and discouragement. 
Well, next week, we will finish 1 Peter, then we'll read 2 Peter, which is much different than 1 Peter. And in the Old Testament, we will read Lamentations, Obadiah, more of Jeremiah. We'll also read Psalms 137, 147, and Psalm 80. So I hope you join us next week. We'll see you then for week 42 of the 5-Day Reading Plan podcast.